This is the Making Ways podcast, sponsored by Ripple Effect. We're here in Brookings, South Dakota, at the Cool Beans Coffee Shop with John Mills, representative of District Eight. Welcome, John. Good morning, babe. Thanks for coming up to Brookings this morning. We've got a nice day, and uh, I'm glad to be here. You had a op-ed in the Dakota Scout recently about the carbon capture pipeline, which went into the origins of where this came from and what it's about. And I thought that was very interesting. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I was feeling this this is just riding too much under the radar for folks. That, and I, frankly, was one of those people that uh, didn't really have a clue a couple of years ago uh, until a constituent reached out and asked me what I knew about it. And I had to admit to him, I didn't know anything. And so through that process, I started to become educated, attended a PUC informational meeting in Flandreau, huge crowd there, very fascinating because out of this large crowd in Flandreau, there were only two people in the audience by show of hands who were there that were in favor of this pipeline. So I began to question and listen and dig and learn. And the, the more that I've learned about it, the more concerned I am, the people are just unaware of what's coming. And so we felt like uh, I needed to write, provide a little context, help people to begin to think, to see what's, what's on the horizon. So it is coming, but it's on the horizon. It's just the craziest thing ever. I, I think I've never, in my life, I can't remember anything that I would consider as foolish uh, as this particular government initiative. Our federal government and as I said in the article, this legislation passed by only one vote. It took the deciding vote of the vice president in the Senate to finally get that legislation through. And of course, that was back when the, the Democrats had control of, of both chambers. Um, You're talking about the federal government. I'm talking about the federal government. It, all, it was went down entirely along party lines. All the Republicans voted against it. All the Democrats voted for it. I don't think parts of this particular bill are partisan, but and as a package, it went down along partisan lines, and the vice president pushed it through. Well, the piece that I, relates to the particular issue with carbon capture is the one that's really front and center in South Dakota today. And not just here. It's in our neighboring states. It's in other parts of the country. It relates to this idea that they want to take carbon dioxide, which you pretty natural product, you and I are exhaling it as we speak, and through a process, they want to capture it off of ethanol plants as one of their targets, take this natural product and compress it, and take something that's safe and make it extremely dangerous, and then send it through a network of pipes all across the state until it, and up into North Dakota, where the intention is to bury. And you think, well, how does this make sense? Who's buying it? What's the, what's the product where there is no product. There's no benefit strictly to get rid of it. Um, no market. There's no market. Absolutely no market. The money then to do it is coming from the government, which doesn't have the money to start with. So they're printing it. They're borrowing money from my grandchildren and your grandchildren. That angers me, frankly, to do something that we don't need and we don't want, and then on top of that, to give us something that's extremely dangerous, it, it's just about as foolish as it comes. This would only exist because of 
that legislation because of the government mandate and government subsidies. Correct. Correct. Yeah. It, it, what they use is a, a vehicle called tax credits. Yeah. Now, most of us don't have any idea what tax credits are because really the only people who make use of tax credits are wealthy folks. You know, it's a fair point. Big corporations and wealthy folks. That's who makes use of tax credits. And so bureaucrats and, and folks in D.C. will use that tool once in a while to benefit big corporations and wealthy people. And, and I don't have anything against wealthy people. I, I'm just saying that that's where the benefit's going to land, and it's going to come at the expense of all taxpayers. You know, just put us further in debt. And along that same lines, it's part of what's causing the inflation that we've all felt. Anytime you're borrowing and spending money you don't have, uh, you're ratcheting up inflation. I've heard that upwards of 70% of farmers have already signed on to the carbon capture pipeline. And so it's a minority of farmers, the landowners that are opposed to it. You know, and I've heard that same statistic. I think the, uh, there's several things related to that. The first is that it, it might be true, we're not sure, but if it is true, it's certainly also true that many of those who signed up have signed up because of the threat of eminent domain. And I went to Pier last week, wherever that was for the rally, week and a half ago, with two farmers. They both said they got a letter from the pipeline company. The first letter, first communication they received said, we'd like, we've got a pipeline that's gonna come through property you own. We'd like to negotiate uh, with you. But, oh, by the way, if you don't want to negotiate, we're going to take your property and through eminent domain. So the very first communication they got was accompanied by a threat. Just from a, just from a basic knowledge or understanding of negotiating, the only way you can have a true equal and honest negotiation is if both parties have the ability to walk away. Consent. Yeah, to be able to say, no, I, I don't want this deal. This is not good for me. And, and without that ability, you can't have a negotiation. That, that's another component. The other part about the 70%, when I hear that, that frustrates me, is that even those who signed up willingly and are glad to get the money and happy to have the pipeline, that's their choice and that's, that's fine. But my guess is if you ask those people, they don't want to force their neighbor to also sign up. You know, there's not an implication that Okay, 70% signed up, therefore we, we, we want you to sign up. Uh, they, they did that, those who did willingly, great. But they're not trying to force their neighbor. And many of those who signed up have done so under duress because they know the option is, well, I either sign up and take this deal or I'm going to end up in a long, drawn-out court battle and I'll have lawyer fees and all kinds of other costs. The root of the opposition, then, is the eminent domain issue rather than opposition to the pipeline get it up itself. I, th I think, uh, you know, the eminent domain is certainly at the, uh, the, the epicenter of the issue. I think, uh, I, frankly, I think all of us ought to be concerned with the pipeline because of the safety issue. Sure. I, I, I don't think we, we understand that nearly enough. You might think, well, I don't live by an ethanol plant or, you know, that pipe's going to be 10, 20 miles, 50 miles away from me, whatever. But the fact is, because it's going to connect with this whole network of uh, ethanol plants and traverse across South Dakota all the way up into North Dakota, it will cross Interstate 90, Interstate 29, Highways 34, 14, 81. You know, take your pick. All of us drive those highways. And if there's a rupture, wherever there's a rupture, life is in danger. 
And as part of why I put that uh, in the article about what happened down in um, Satarsha, Mississippi, that was back in 2020, very rural area. In fact, I looked it up. Satarsha, Mississippi only had a population of 41, but 45 people ended up in the ER after that rupture. And when you read the story, it's scary. And folks were on the ground. They couldn't breathe. It, emergency responders came out. Their vehicles quit working because vehicles need oxygen to run. Fortunately, no one died. But there are a lot of health issues that remain in that community. And that doctors say, obviously, there'll be, uh, there'll be brain injury because the brain is the uh, first one to... Uh, to be harmed by lack of oxygen. And it's really kind of amazing nobody died. And I think with the pipelines that are coming, we just have a big risk. In fact, in Oneida, last week, there was an explosion at a ethanol plant. Do you remember that? I heard about it, yes. Yeah. I All I could think about was, oh my goodness, what if they had been connected to a CO2 line? Because all these ethanol plants, a lot of them are close to town. Somebody said the one in Oneida is maybe a half a mile from town. And, and you think about if the explosion had ruptured that CO2 pipe, not only is the explosion potentially harmful, but for perhaps hours later, it is an you know, amount of CO2 that could escape cloud because CO2 is heavier than air, so it sinks to the ground. And then depending on the weather conditions, it would move with the wind. It could have moved right into town. But I, I just I just have this concern that people don't know the risk that we're about to walk into. There is a legislative fix that we can apply to this as there been a special session has not been called, but I understand there's a petition being circulated. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, there was some, there were several pieces of legislation this last year that would have gone a long way to fix the eminent domain issue. A couple of those passed the House, I didn't send a committee. Those particular pieces of legislation could come back along with perhaps some variations that go a long way towards fixing this issue. There, there is a call for a special session. I was at the rally out in here that had 500 or more people there. Uh, I was there also. There were more than 500 people at that rally. Yeah, I've heard numbers. You know, the media had numbers like 200, 300. And, I, and I, I guess the one thing I would say as a legislator who's been in for seven years, it was the largest crowd I have seen in the Capitol. And you're talking about in the summertime. Yes. People are vacationing. They're at work. Yes. And, and just to get to pier yes. for 95% of those folks is not easy. Right, and yet 100 people at a rally in Pier is a big deal. It is a big deal. It had over 500. I mean, I, I was there. I counted them. Now, this is what I do, is sure. I counted people, and there were more than 500 people at that rally. Yeah, it was a big crowd. At, at a weekday, at noon hour, uh, in summer, that was a remarkable turnout. Yeah, and, and you know, at, just a little sidebar, it was so uh, inspiring to hear us all recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Just in perfect unison in that capital. It was just like music. Uh, and then at the end of sing God Bless America. I mean, these were not people there who were uh, radical or trying to upset the status quo. These were, and they came from all over the state. Mm -hmm. And that to me is awfully amazing too, because really the bulk of the, the damage that's going to happen is in eastern South Dakota. And on this, that's where the ethanol plants are. And 
That's where this pipeline will be. I think property rights and eminent domain issues uh, apply to everyone. They do. Absolutely. There other projects in South Dakota that I'm going to discuss with some other legislators uh, that have been involving eminent domain that, that uh, come up also. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a universal issue. And I said that in the article that property rights are constitutionally guaranteed and, and we ought to care when anybody's property rights are in danger. If there were a special session, do you think consensus would be achieved? There's been talk that there is no consensus. That's why there's no special session. I do. I do think so. I think obviously this is the understanding of this issue is growing. And so the demand is growing. Uh, I think it, it's going to take the leadership, particularly the governor and the Senate, uh, to, uh, to recognize that and to uh, come around and lead. I've been in the legislature seven years. I've been in five special sessions. Every one of those was called by the governor. And so that oftentimes the governor sits in this unique spot. You need to recognize what's happening out in the state and take leadership on, on these issues. This may be somewhat uh, regional, but uh, we've had other regional issues like that, like the non-meandered waters and you know other things that governors have called us in the special session for because they recognize that. And, and I think that leadership adds, if there is any uh, lack of consensus, that leadership by the governor would turn that completely. This is not the only... Uh issue or thing you're involved with. So you are on the county funding committee from Sad Boy. Can you tell us about that? I am. So I've heard about that. Oh, well, you haven't? No. So we have 66 counties in South Dakota. About 12 or 15 of them are really struggling financially. And a lot of that goes back to uh, when a property tax freeze went into place in the late or the mid-90s, like under Jack Law. It, and a little history, at that time, because this history was important to me to, to figure out, well, why are some counties suffering and others aren't? Context is important. To right. And so what I learned was in the 90s, uh, a lot of public governments, counties and schools had excess reserves. And there was sort of a, a, a recognition of that and pushback from the public saying, wait a minute, why don't my taxes keep going up and you guys are just sitting on this huge reserve? And so uh, some of the counties responded to that of pressure and began to use use up their reserves instead of raising taxes. And some went even further. Some started using their reserves down to fund their annual budgets and lowered taxes. Well, then, under Jack Lowe's leadership, property taxes were frozen at whatever level they were at at that point in time and only allowed to increase by uh, inflation but to a maximum of 3% plus growth, in and plus whatever growth has happened. And so those counties that spent down their reserves and lowered taxes and then got locked into that lower rate, those are many of the counties that are struggling today. Prop taxes not only fund the counties, but also the schools. Yeah, in fact, this has been very interesting to me. I didn't realize it. The county, while property tax is their primary source of revenue, by far, they only keep about 24% of property tax they collect. Uh, you know, 55% of it or something like that goes to the schools. And then the rest is divided up among the municipalities, emergency services, 
the uh, road districts. There's a whole laund- townships. There's a whole laundry list of other folks who get uh, small pieces of the property tax. So the counties are keeping about a fourth of it. Yeah. And so the, this committee has been tasked with trying to figure this out. And are, what are the solutions? Can Are there some consolidations that can happen? Are there some services that state maybe should pick up that the counties have been bearing? There's a variety of things. And one that one of the solutions that at least I brought forward after listening to all this, the, the counties receive the tax money and they, they divide it up and they send it out to all these other government entities, folks they give it to. And they do all that work. And the county is the one that's audited for that also. They're responsible for their division of all that property tax, but they receive no administrative compensation. And I think they should. I think they, they, they ought to be able to say, wait a minute, we've got some extra staff. We have some extra responsibility. We've got to endure the audit. It covers all this. There's time involved with I think they ought to be able to retain a portion of that to cover that work. And that, that's a small thing. But, you know, maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars for a, a county, you know, that's not... can make a difference. That's not insignificant. Especially a small county. Yeah, one of my counties that I represent is Lake County. They're one of the ones that's struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, 180 dollars $200,000 for them every year would make a difference. Mm-hmm. And they're in an opt-out right now, uh, which may come to a vote and is yet to be referred, but that's a possibility because they've been struggling that much. It's a bad I on board. Thank you for being on the podcast. Appreciate it. This is Dave Rotman. Thank you for listening to the Making Waves podcast. Thanks, Dave.